0: That is called antinomian, coming from the Greek word nomos, law, anti, against the law. We're not against the law. We just believe that the law has been fulfilled. So if you want to look at a cup being filled, you could think of it as being beneficial. So think think of like you come to my house, and I say, would you like something to drink? And you go, sure. And I give you a cup of water, okay? Now, more people come, and I say, would you guys like something to drink? Well, what I could do with that cup is I can now pour it into the pitcher, fill up the rest of the pitcher, and then pour out from there. Are you listening? I, by having those options, I haven't disregarded the first cup being filled. I've just put it into a place where it can be filled more, and more can come. Does everybody get that? That's how you can look at the law being fulfilled. He's not taking this law, this fullness of the law of Moses and just tossing it aside going I don't care about this anymore. That was me meaning God in the Old Testament. This was me before coffee. Now I've woke up a little bit in human history. I've had some coffee. Now I'm a nice God. No, it's him saying here is my law pouring it into the new covenant, making it full all that could possibly be accomplished was accomplished. Jesus did it by living perfectly by the way. That's how he accomplished it. And then adding into it all of the things that we will now know as the New Covenant. So the New Covenant is not necessarily replacing the laws of the Old Testament. It's not doing away with the laws of the Old Testament. It's bringing those laws to their fulfillment. It's bringing them to a higher level where that water glass would only fill up this much of water. But now that water glass being poured into the pitcher, the pitcher can hold much more water. Can I hear an amen? Now, to understand, because it's all water, what applies to us. Jesus now teaches us, like in this illustration, how to, in the book of Hebrews, how to live in the new covenant while honoring that law. Because like water, the cup of water, and the water now in the jar is all the same substance. God's laws, whether they're old or new, they're all the same substance. They come from his mind, from his character, for his good and benefit. But he now can tell us how we're going to live out that law. So now I've taken this cup, put it into a a, a vase or a jar, and now I can now divvy it out to you and however I want to do that. What we now learn in the new covenant is how these laws will be given to us. So for example when we think about the dietary laws they have been poured into that into that jar and now been brought to fullness and we are now to see that the laws of diet were there to teach us how to be separate from the world that we live in they're not now to be taken literal as we have to keep a diet and how many are glad you could have some ham over thanksgiving amen it doesn't mean now you have to do it that way. It just means in your life, separate your life from swine. Remember when Jesus said, don't give your pearls to swine. Don't do that. So he, he said that this swine is like people. Swine is like how people act, dirty and muddy. And he said in his scriptures, don't give that which is precious to these pigs, Now, that may not sound very nice in our 21st century culture that really the law of diet was to teach us to stay away from people who act like pigs, but that was the fulfillment of it. That was the purpose of it. The same thing with mixing of claws, not to mix certain claws together or to um, mix certain seeds in your garden. They had to be separated. This now has been brought to fulfillment to teach us God's order and his plans for our life. You shouldn't mix sin into your life. You shouldn't try to mix things into your life that even cause you to be double-minded. They may not be sins, but there would be double-mindedness, things that can take you off track. You are to stay focused. Once again, I don't have to keep that literal law. And at the same time, I don't disregard the law. I take it as a fulfillment. So there's two ditches that we avoid when we look to the Old Testament law. One ditch is to say, just get rid of it. It doesn't mean anything. Cut out that part of your Bible. You only need 27 books. There's nothing to learn there, folks, nothing to see here. Just move along. The other side is, hey, you better put that into practice or you're not a real Christian. You better follow the law to the T like the Jewish people did. We're avoiding both of those ditches. We're not disregarding it and we're not keeping it the same way. We are now new covenant people with a new jar, with a new jug, filled with those laws and they have now been brought to their fullness, filled up with the new covenant. Can I hear an amen? That's why the Jewish people, the first ones who were Christian were Jews. It's impossible to be an anti-Semite and to be a Christian because Jews gave us the Bible and Jesus was a Jew, amen? So when you hear about Nazis, when you hear about white supremacy, when you hear about those kind of people, you have met a full-fledged idiot, okay? Jesus is Semitic. Jesus is Jewish. The Bible is written, every single book, by a Jewish person, okay? Okay? So, when the Jewish people of that time, the first disciples and then the disciples of the disciples, are looking to their Bible, they're looking to the Old Testament. But they're not there to have that cup of water by itself in that format. They are seeing how that cup of water has been now poured into the spirit of God and brought to fullness through the teachings of Jesus being poured out through his commands. So now they look to the Old Testament and they ask themselves, WWJD, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do about diets? Oh, and they wrote down in their gospel, well, Jesus said, all foods are now clean. It's not what goes into a man that defiles them. It's what goes out of a man. Amen? And then he said to uh, Peter, Peter, kill and eat." And Peter, in this vision, is seeing all of these animals that the Jewish people weren't allowed to eat. And when Peter got up from that vision, he understood because what that meant because then there were Gentiles coming to ask him to come preach the gospel. So that vision was to show him that like how animals can be included in your diet, you're now to include people from every nationality into the church that he's establishing. Amen. So all of these have fulfillments. Some of them, and and a lot of them, are written in our scriptures. Others, we just have to do our own research. In, In other words, they didn't go through the Bible in the Old Testament, all 613, and go, this is how it's fulfilled, this is how it's fulfilled, and draw all the lines there for us. We have a lot of the major categories all drawn there for us, as we'll see in the book of Hebrews. We see the priesthood fulfilled. We see the sacrificial order. We'll see a lot of that which made the Jewish religion what it was fulfilled, but then there are some that we have to go alongside of, and then we have to see how it applies to Jesus. The bottom line is, see Jesus in all of those laws. Amen? It's not that Jesus is just the shadow or, or the reality of the shadow of the Passover. He's the reality of everything in the law. Everything in the law is the outline of Jesus. And once again, that doesn't mean it's to the uh, exact way that the Jewish people kept it, because Jesus shows us that the diet outline of his character that they kept wasn't really to show us that we were have to you know only eat one kind of food and reject another kind of food. It was really to show us not to be defiled by our lives, amen. Because that's why he declared all foods clean. Does everybody get that? So like sometimes when you talk to people, they're like, well, could you imagine Jesus eating pork? Or could you imagine Jesus eating a crawfish or a lobster? These are the things that he forbade. Absolutely. Jesus made those from the beginning. And he would have no problem eating any of it. The only reason why he pointed out those things was so that they would have a different culture. Culture is generally food, diet, you know, dress, these kinds of things, language. And so he provided those examples of what he was about through diet, through clothes, through dress. In other words, you would have to say, what did God make a pig for? you know? Because then Adam and Eve get told that they could eat everything. The the trees, they were spurs, first supposed to start off as vegetarians, but then after that, all of that was given to them, and that was reinstated as well to Noah. Otherwise, you'd have to say, why would God make a pig then? You know, why would God make anything? And you can eat a pig just like you could eat a lion, okay? You could eat your dog. You could eat your horse, okay? You could eat a monkey if you want to, okay? Like an Indiana Jones. Now, How far you want to go with that, that's up to you. But those are the things that God has given us for food. And it's the same thing for clothes, for planting our our crops, for harvest, and so forth. Now let's look at this passage because now we need to have that in mind as we go to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1, about the Sabbath. This central part of the Jewish faith that they held so dearly. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still remains, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us, just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them, because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said, So I declared on my oath in anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet, His works have been finished since the creation of the world, for somewhere, and I love that preacher right there, for somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day, God rested from all of his works. And again in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. Come on, somebody say amen. What are we supposed to get from that? What we're supposed to get from that is that the author of Hebrews, please go up to verse one is telling us not to be like the Jews who received the law of the Sabbath but did not enter into it because they were rebellious and sinful. Everybody check. Make sure I'm telling you the truth. There remains a promise of entering his rest. It still stands. And he's saying to those people now, which would be in the first century, for them not to miss it. So he's looking back towards the first People who heard the law of Moses as they were delivered from Egypt, living in the wilderness. He's saying, don't be like them. They did not get the rest. They missed it, even though they had the gospel preached to them. The word good news there is literally gospel. Gospel. Was the gospel present in the Old Testament? Absolutely. If you just listen to that introduction I gave you, the gospel shadow was there. Through all that they were learning about the law, if they put it together, they would see the gospel. The sacrifices, the dietary laws, uh, the the blood that needed to be shed for all different kinds of sins, the Levitical priesthood, the uh, temple, the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant. I mean, I could be here all day describing each one of these as a shadow putting together the pieces of the gospel. That should be encouraging to you. The gospel is founded in the Old Testament. This is why we're not saying meany God, new God, you know, old God, new God, meany God, nice God. When Christians look at the Bible as these early Jewish people did, they are formulating the details of the new covenant from all the promises of the old covenant. In other words, the Bible for the Christian was the Old Testament. Where most of us, all we know how to do in the Old Testament is take out the nice Sunday school stories of David killing Goliath, Daniel in the lion's den. They knew how to go back there and find their marching orders and to find the fulfillment of those shadows so that they might have the real deal in Jesus. And that's what's so beautiful about Christianity. It would seem that God, if he were to speak to us, would speak to us that way. In other words, God would tell us about himself before he would come so that when he came, we would recognize him and not fall for the phony. Did you ever wonder why there's prophecy in the Old Testament? Or just in general, why there's two covenant, why there is even an Old Testament? And testament, for those who don't know, just means covenant, deal, agreement. I believe the entire purpose of that Old Testament, that old agreement, that way of doing things was so that when Jesus came, there would be no confusion over who he is. Well, how do we know you're the right one? Because then everybody could come as they do now. I'm God, I'm this, I'm that, and then tell you all types of stuff. But hold on, in the time of Jesus, you could say, well, were you born of a virgin? Let's just start right there and see if you can even apply for the job. To apply for the job of Messiah, according to Isaiah, you know, seven, you have to be born of a virgin. See? And you have to be born in Bethlehem, and you have to come from the line of David. Do you see how that works? God in the Old Testament is setting up the stage for the New Testament. And one of these important things, and let's go to it in the Scripture, in Genesis, go to Genesis chapter 2. Verse 2 and 3 is one of the most important things we learn early on is that God sets up a concept of rest. And this is going to be a part of their law. So chapter 2, verse 1 of Genesis, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work He had been doing. So on the what day? The seventh day, and for us, this would be a Saturday, and if we're doing it according to, you know, evening and morning, we would know it from Friday evening to Saturday evening, right? So by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on the, that day, the seventh day, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Now, do you hear anywhere in this passage a command... For Adam and Eve now to rest on the Sabbath day a certain way. No, you just hear that God at this point out of his example, and of course we know he doesn't get tired, but out of his example of resting, he now sets it aside and makes it holy it's going to eventually turn into what we're going to see detailed in the law of Moses with all of these Sabbath laws. Some of the 613 laws apply directly to the Sabbath. There's a a lot going on there. You can only travel so far. You can only do so much. You're not allowed to go out and do these things or those kinds of things. So there's going to be multiple laws under the category called Sabbath that come from 613. But here at the beginning, we don't see any of that. We don't see even a law. We don't even see a command. What we see, though, is that God is separating it, making it to be special and important. Now, what are we going to learn about that law by the time it comes to Moses or about the Sabbath, about this holy day? What are we going to learn about this? Is that this day is going to represent, everybody get this, not rest from your job, but this day is going to represent rest from your religious works. Mic drop. Mic drop. That's going to be the whole point of this day. The point of this day is not going to be you taking time off, though that's a beautiful way to organize and structure your week. Six days you work, one day you have off. I know in the American work week we do five and two, but according to the Bible it's six and one. And that's a great way to live. This is healthy. This can be beneficial. And I'm not saying work six You know, 20 hour days. If you worked how they did from sun up to sun down as well, that would be about 8 to 10 hours a day with some rest in between. They would rest as well. You would have a healthy life. This is the way God intended it and you take that time off. But what we're going to see according to Hebrews and what we're already seeing in this first portion is that that day was not made to just tell us stop working. That day where they stopped working and were commanded to do so was to show us the rest from trying to work our way to heaven. Go back. Hebrews chapter 4, did I make it up or is it there? Okay, now watch. He says there's a promise of entering his rest. Those people did not enter it. Now ask yourself this question. Did those people living in the camp of Israel who received the commandments of Sabbath, did they take off work on Saturday? Absolutely. The ones who didn't died real quick. Are you all listening to me? After those jokers got killed and taken out the way, what do you think the rest of them did? They rested. But hold on. The author of Hebrews, seeing the full jar now of water, understanding the whole point of what the Sabbath was given for, is now looking back at that time saying, they didn't enter into it. Well, why is that? He says, because they rebelled. They didn't add faith to it. They were going through the motions, sitting down, going, man, I'm glad I got a day off. But they weren't receiving the rest in their spirit that they were supposed to be getting out of it from that physical example. So in other words, in the American culture, or European as it eventually became known, you would take off Sunday and then go to church on Sunday. and supposed to connect those two together. I'm not working but I'm going to church and trusting God. I'm not working to earn something. I'm going to a place to receive grace from my God. Do you all get that? There was supposed to be a lesson in there, and we didn't get that on our own. We got that by looking back to them because that's what they were supposed to get. They were supposed to understand, today I'm not working. Thank God there's grace. And the way that was demonstrated by them getting the manna, because they were supposed to get it six days but not collect on the seventh, that was one of their laws, is that they were supposed to understand on the sixth they can get double so that when it ends on the seventh, they can have more than enough to eat. Amen? So I don't need to work today, but I'm still provided for today. I don't need to go out there and grind today, but I still have what I need today. And what does the Bible say? They didn't get that. They missed it. They missed the entire point of it. They thought, well, if I just don't work today and I don't get stoned and I stay out of trouble, then I get the Sabbath. And God's like, no, they didn't. Because then when it came to other areas of their life, it showed that they didn't connect faith to what God was doing. All along their journey, they continued to be bitter towards God, argue against Moses, cause all of these problems to the point where he said, Only from Joshua and Caleb are going to, uh, only uh, Joshua and Caleb from the 12 uh, spies that went out of the 12 tribes is going to the promised land. The rest of you are all going to die here. Why did he tell them that? Because they hadn't connected that he was a good God, they hadn't connected that he was taking care of them. They had missed it. They thought that if they didn't get water, they weren't going to drink, not understanding God can bring water out of a rock. They didn't understand that they you know, they thought if they can't have food like they had in Egypt, they were going to starve, not understanding that God could bring up food from the, from the dew. And they kept complaining, and they kept doing it to the point where God says, now watch, not only will you not get a break from your work anymore in that way, now you're going to miss the promised land which is where now we get the concept of there is a weekly rest. Somebody say a weekly rest. And then there's an eternal rest. Come on. The example that they were supposed to see was, man, if I'm getting a weekly rest, if God is always being good to me on this weekly schedule, then I know God's going to take care of me on an eternal schedule. But because they blew it on their weekly schedule, they didn't get it. Now they don't get the eternal rest. And in between there, in between their normal everyday life and going to be with Jesus in heaven was the promised land, which was supposed to be a place that reminded them of the kingdom of heaven on earth. The promised land was supposed to be kind of like that blurry line between what God is doing in heaven and what God will do on earth. Like like heaven and earth were supposed to be joined together in some way. Like, like it was supposed to be like paradise for them, especially when you listen to the descriptions of it. But they blew it, and they had to die and couldn't even go to it. And then finally, as we get down to Joshua and to others, as they get closer to it, even there, they don't fully receive all that it was supposed to be. And so God gave them a chance to have paradise on earth, heaven on earth, in the promised land, but hardly anybody even tried to receive it. And by the time they get to the the judges, nobody even wants it anymore. They want their land to be ruled by kings like everybody else. And the Bible even says that the kings were now going to manipulate them, take them to war, steal their, their women, and it was going to go downhill from there. But we look back at theologians and say, did anybody even have it? And it doesn't even look like Joshua had it because all of the land still was never occupied, even under Joshua. It seems like even Joshua took an easy way out and didn't do all that he was supposed to do, or at least the ones after him because they never occupied that land. If you look on a Bible map, the land that they occupied was just a portion of everything that they were supposed to have. And so the people of Israel never even got close, in other words. Now, you see this? This is not just a good Bible story. This is not just where we go, oh, okay, now I understand what went wrong for them. No, you're supposed to see exactly in that verse. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. So now you and I are supposed to read this and scratch our head and go, oh, hold on. What can I miss here? Because it's telling me, the author is telling me not to miss something. Highlight his rest still stands, please. What I'm supposed to see is that I can miss his rest. And if you've been tracking with me, what do you get instantly? That spiritual rest. that spiritual rest. But there's also an eternal rest, isn't there? Because it's not just a promised land that we're looking for now, is it? We're looking for heaven. We're looking to be reunited with God. The promised land was supposed to be just a shadow of God's heavenly land. Amen? And so this author is telling us, hey, you better make sure you don't miss this. Because they had the good news preached to them. They learned about these things back then for them to understand in their context, and they didn't get it. They had a cup, and they were supposed to know that that cup was for them, but they didn't even get that, let alone that it was going to be fulfilled in Christ and go to this whole other level. They didn't even get that. They couldn't even get the first part. And I think about today in the Christian church about how we miss all of it. Most of us in the church don't even get, we don't understand the Old Testament. We don't understand what Jesus did. We don't understand the promises. And we're falling into the trap that Hebrews is warning us about. Because when was the last time you said, Jesus is my Sabbath rest? When was the last time you said, I can't wait to be in eternal rest? When was the last time you looked at the time that you got God's rest until you go permanently in his rest? You saw saw this as an opportunity to bring others to rest as a kingdom of God coming to earth as the kingdom is in heaven. Most of us don't even make those connections, and we miss it, and yet the author here felt it so important to take a chapter out of our Holy Scriptures to explain it because he doesn't want us to miss it. Otherwise, highlight this, please, the message will have no value. If you think that you are working your way to heaven, you have missed the entire message of the gospel. You need to be reminded of why there was a command for Sabbath, If you think it's because you do a little and God does a little, you do a little and God does a little, you have received no value from the message of the gospel. Because the message of the gospel is not you doing 50% of the work and then God doing the other 50%. There's going to be work a Christian will do, but the entire basis of the message of the Bible is that God creates. You don't. And then when God rests, you rest with him. But the world wants to take it upon themselves to do what God has not told them to do. It's almost as if on the seventh day, instead of resting with God, we want to go back out there and weave a basket. We want to go back out there and plant some more garden (laughs) instead of trusting God. And this doesn't give anybody an excuse to be lazy. It doesn't. Remember, it's based on six days working, one day rest. But the point is we've missed what that day of rest actually is. And this is why, and let me just be very clear and honest with you, this is why many here backslide and you don't get Christianity because you're looking towards your effort in Christianity to accomplish Christianity. And what you don't understand, for you, to think you could ac- accomplish the work of Christianity, for you to think that, would be like you thinking you could create the heavens and earth in six days. You're supposed to come to Christianity like how Adam and Eve came to the Sabbath rest. Enjoy everything God made and say, thank you, God, for it. It's a gift. You are not supposed to come to Christianity going, what can I contribute to those six days of labor? What did you miss, God? God. What can I do to save myself? No. You're supposed to come 100% on the lazy boy of God's grace and rest in him. And he takes pleasure from that. Go to Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Don't take my words. Take it from Jesus' words. This is how we were supposed to understand rest. Somebody say a Sabbath rest. Come on. A Sabbath rest is in Christ Jesus. I'm not talking about being lazy and not doing anything for the Lord. We'll balance this out, trust me. But this is what Christianity is supposed to look like to you. Jesus speaking to the people. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. That's a lot of people going to church today. I'm tired, Pastor. I've been going to church all week. I'm tired, Pastor. I had to do Bible study. I'm tired, Pastor, of fighting temptation. That's how people talk about Christianity. If you're talking about Christianity like that, you don't have any Christ in your anity. You got buffooner anity. You're acting as a buffoon. You got sinner anity. You don't have Christianity because how a person comes into this is busted and disgusted. If you're still busted and disgusted, you haven't got what you're supposed to get. See, this is the mark of the world, and all of the religions fall under this. All the Hindus doing all their yoga poses. All the diets that they try to keep. All the five prayers of the Muslim. All of the different things they teach you in Roman Catholicism to do. All of these works to try to earn some. Jesus said, are you done with it? Come to me now when you're tired. Because I'm not going to fight you over it. God will let you keep doing it. Well, I've got to light three candles, go to two masses, talk to the priest, do that to feel right today. Well, God says, can you keep doing it then? Let me know when you're tired. Come to me when you're tired of it. Come to me when you're tired of praying five times towards a rock in Mecca. Tell me when you're tired of trying to keep all these dietary laws, wondering what what countertop was in the back, if it was kosher or not. That's who he's talking to. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. There it is. If your Christianity is not based on rest, you're doing something wrong. I really want to, you know, just really stay here for a moment. Stay here, park here, intensify this point, because too many of you are not at rest, and you're calling yourself Christians, and you're not doing it right. You are not doing it right. Christianity starts at the finish line. The race that we are running is to keep what God has already given us. The reason why we're more than conquerors is because he conquered for us. Now, by faith, don't give up that victory. When the Bible says you fight spiritual battles, you don't fight it for victory. You fight it from victory. That's why the Bible says stand. Stand. It doesn't say go over there and get it. It says stand where you're at. Stand your ground because you're supposed to be standing, and I'm supposed to be standing in victory and in rest. And one of the greatest temptations of the devil, that's why the Bible said it's sin, is to get us to worry, to get us to go out and fret, to try to take over and do it ourselves. And that's why the Bible says, do not worry. Because worry and fear is the opposite of faith and trust. How do I know that I'm on the wrong path? When I'm feeling burnout, tired, and I can't see the things of faith. Because all I see is my effort, my ability, my failure. That's how I know I'm off the right, wrong, right path. I'm on the wrong path. Are you listening? And that will be a sign to you throughout your Christian life. Man, I'm, I'm not at ease. My heart's not at rest. I'm restless in my mind. You've stepped off the path of righteousness then. you got to go back to that place of rest. Because Christianity is defined by rest. It is the reason why they were taught to sit down. It was the reason why they were told, if you even go out now and pick up sticks, we're going to stone you in front of everybody. So you get it through your thick head. You're not burning that fire by night. I keep that fire going. And I meet people all the time, well, Jesus not going to pay my bills. I have to do this, this, and that. You see, what they don't understand is without Jesus, they would be like a dog sniffing their behind, eating their own vomit today. God made you a human. You can rest in him and know he'll take care of your human self. The same one who created the heavens and the earth can create opportunities for you to gain wealth and have no trouble with it. The Bible says he makes them rich and adds no sorrows to it. And so we fight against God, arm wrestle with God, push and shove against God. When he is telling us this is how it works. Because we're going to get to you working and me working and there's stuff to do. But we only work from a place of rest. We only marry from a place of rest, not desperation. We only raise our children from rest, not out of fear and anxiety about what they're going to become. We do everything from that place of rest. We face our troubles from that place of rest. We go through our struggles from that place of rest. We are enduring suffering from that place of rest. And no one will move us from it when we're in God's hand. The whole world may be going to hell in a handbasket, and they're wondering why you're taking a nap. It's because you're like your Jesus. Amen? You're like your Jesus. You can nap through the storm because you're at rest. If God said it, that settles it, I know he's going to do it. That's why when we go through these scriptures, if we don't take our time, we're going to miss this entire picture of Hebrews. Flip right through to the next story. Tell me something else because I don't get this. you got to take time to read the scriptures. And I'm right there with you. I can want the easy way out sometime. But when you take your time and you listen and maybe even go back over what I was preparing you for in the introduction and you you start to look at some of the examples I was giving you and trying to describe Old and New Testament, you'll see that it's the same God and he's been a good God. And he's offered all people, not just some people in the new covenant, because sometimes it's like, well, feel sorry for those bad people, you know, those people in the old covenant. Jesus wasn't there and it wasn't being nice to them. That's not true. Jesus was there with them. Jesus was preaching to them. Moses met Jesus. The Bible literally says that the rock that followed them, that gave them water, that rock was Jesus. Now, is there a better and upgrade of the new covenant. Absolutely. There's a higher level of glory in all of these wonderful things, but you don't have to feel sorry for them back in the day. They were given Jesus through the law. Psalm 119, I'm going through it now in my devotional, the longest chapter of the Bible is about the law of God and how God uses it to reveal his character, to be a light unto our path. Amen. A lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Going through the scripture now. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is hard and my burden is terrible. No, my yoke is easy and my burden is some of y'all need to come to Jesus and lay your burdens down and take up hallelujah his yoke because his yoke is easy some of y'all want to play a video game on easy mode so you can get those things but you need to you need to come to Jesus and say Lord hit easy mode for me I can't play it on difficult. I can't even play it on moderate. I need easy mode. I'll preach a whole nother sermon right here. The easy mode of life is with Jesus. Well, what about all those other scriptures he said about being willing to suffer? And what about the scriptures that talk about persecution? And what about the scriptures that talk about hatred coming from your own family? All of that is still true, but the yoke of Christ is easy, and you'll go through it with joy unspeakable, full of glory on the inside of you. When you go through what other people fear, you'll go through it singing songs of joy in the songs of Zion. Because what you have, the world didn't give to you, and the world can't take it away. This joy that I have, woo! the world didn't give it, and the world can't take it away. You look at the stories of the martyrs. Read Fox's book of martyrs free online. Oftentimes, they would give them chances to recant their faith. Just say, Caesar is Lord, and you'll be done with it. Just tell us that you'll worship our gods as well as your God. That's all we need. You can still have your God. Just worship our God with your God. And these stories coming through Fox Book of Martyrs said that these people faced these trials and tests with so much joy that there were times when the executioners would renounce Rome, become Christians, and die alongside of them. Imagine being so turned on by God's people. That you were there once to kill them and go home and get your snack and go on with your day. But you join those dying because you say, I have seen all kinds of gods. I've seen all kinds of priests. I've been to all kinds of religious festivals for Zeus and Bacchus. But I've never seen what I just saw on that woman's face. I want what she has. The Bible tells the stories as well of, you know, of our brothers and sisters who have gone on before us. That's why it doesn't matter what culture you have come from now that you're in Christ. You are Christ's culture. You are his brother and sister. Amen. Those people in the Bible, those your people. Amen. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those my people. My people faced those times, and what did they do? They said, even if we don't get delivered out of your hands, know this day that we'll never bow down to you because we worship this God. This is our God, and of course he still showed up. One like a man in the fire with them. we know, was Jesus. Jesus was there with those brothers. And today, brothers and sisters, as we go back to the passage, even as I'm preaching today, hear the teaching. You and I cannot miss this rest, otherwise we're in trouble. Because they had the message preached to them. And they missed it. Why did they miss it? Because they did not have the faith. Now you and I, we're shouting, man, we're excited. We have faith now, right? But are you going to have faith when you're carrying your children through the desert and you have nothing to drink? I mean, that was real test, wasn't it? But what did God want to do? He wanted their test to become a testimony. There is no trouble that we'll ever face that God won't turn for his good. Somebody might say, well, I got got one I can think of. What if you die? How is God going to turn that for good? Number one, everybody who knows me is going to know I died living for Jesus. And number two, I go right to heaven. Where do you think I go when I die? You see, even our worst fear, the Bible says, death, where is your sting? Let it go, friends, and trust God today. Look at verse 3. Now we, he talks about himself in this group. Now we who have believed have entered that rest. Just as God has said, so I declare all my oath and anger, they shall never enter my rest. So he says, listen, just like how the promise was a negative, it's a positive for me. Just like he said, they'll never enter the rest, I have entered the rest. Praise God. So just as surely as somebody's going to hell, I'm going to heaven, amen? Just as surely as there's people busting and discussing, I'm living living on Praise Alley next to Hallelujah Street, amen? I'm not on Barely Get Along Street next to Grumble Alley, as old preachers used to say. I'm on Shouting Lane next to Hallelujah Avenue. So he says, yeah, there's people who missed it, but not all of them missed it. Joshua didn't miss it. Caleb didn't miss it. There, There were people who received it. The Bible says, and yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world. And so the Bible says, like, God showed us this by resting that, that he was able to do all of these things in his own power, and he's asked us to come into that rest. Some people don't want it, and then God swears and says, you'll never get it. That's, that is something to put the fear of God into anybody that thinks there's another way around this. Amen? God says, I promise you there's no other way. So when Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, I'm you know, the only way to the Father. Friends, don't believe anybody else to give you a different way. God literally says, I declared on oath, they shall never enter my rest. Now look at verse 4. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day, God rested from all his works. And we went through that in the book of Genesis. Now go to John chapter 5, verse 17, and somebody say, the other half. Now let me give you the other half. Look at John 5:17. One scripture says, God has rested from his works. But now look at the book of John, chapter 5, verse 17, in his defense, Jesus is in the middle of an argument here, which we don't have time to get into, but this is about them messing with them because they didn't think Jesus honored the Sabbath because he took the role of a priest and did different things on the Sabbath that only priests could do, like David eating the table of showbread because God allowed David to have a priestly role, even though he was from the tribe of Judah, which is a whole other story. You all tracking with me, though, here? Jesus is not an argument, okay? And let me just ask you to do this one. They studied Jesus' argument and then argued like Jesus. Don't argue like the world that when they lose a fight, they want to beat you up, okay? Go back to the scriptures and learn how to do it like Jesus did. Jesus was a master debater, okay? He could give the word of truth in such a way to twist them around, okay? So they didn't know where, where he was coming from, and it showed the folly of their, their, their foolishness. He caught the fool in their folly. But for us who are his disciples, we learn the wisdom that he had. Listen to what he says. In other words, they were mad at him for doing certain things on the Sabbath like healing. But remember, he can do this because he's a priest unto God. Priests could still do works on the Sabbath. They just couldn't go out and do any kind of work. They could do the work of God. So he says here, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. Notice that he equates himself with the God of the universe. God does this, and so do I. So what do you think he thinks about himself? He thinks he's God too, right? Like, who do you think you are? He would say back, I'm God. Like, that's who I think I am. Because he literally said, I can do what I want on the Sabbath, like how priests could do what they want, because my Father is working, and I'm working too. And the Father to him is the Father, the creator of the universe, right? So we know this about Jesus' self-awareness. His identity was rooted in divinity, just like the Father. But hold on, in another tab, or, or rather just to our notes, go back to our notes, and notice here that it says in Genesis 2, God rested from all of his works. Go back to John, and my Father is always working to this very day. You see, now you have to understand between the two different kinds of rest and the two different kinds of work. What was Jesus teaching us here that the Father is always at work? Well, who sustains the universe that the Father made? The Father does through Jesus, right? So that's work technically being done, isn't it? Aren't you happy that God is sustaining you right now and you're not floating off, like into different particles during that time of, of Thanos with Marvel, like you just come dust and then, you know, that, like that, and you take like two years off. Where were you? Oh, I just didn't exist for two years. God just took off some time, and then he just brought me together. Here I am again. How many are glad he still holds together the universe? How about this? He's also working in his people's lives. How many know the Spirit of God is sent from the Father and does work in our lives? God is working on me. God has done His work and will continue to work on me. We use this language all the time. How many are God, glad God does the work of protecting us? Amen. He walks with us, talks with us, all of these things. Jesus says, my Father is still working. Going back to the Hebrews passage, but the Father, God, He has stopped working. Oh, what do we do with this? We just simply harmonize it. It's not a contradiction. How has the Father stopped working? The Father has stopped working in the sense of creating new things for creation. The creation now is being sustained by the Son and is continuing to expand, but there is nothing new being inserted to it. In other words, the laws of nature have now been fixed, and so We call them the laws of nature, and sometimes people call them, uh, when they're all together, call it Mother Nature. But what should we really say? The laws of God and Father Nature. (laughs) Hey, Amen? Or as the Bible says, the earth is his footstool. We say to Mother Nature, you are where God puts his feet up. God's in control here, okay? But this is to be understood, not in a contradiction, but in a compliment. The Father doesn't need to add anything else to creation. So the early Christians used to wonder, you know, as they fought against the evolutionists and these things, does God get inside of every womb, as the psalmist says, and literally knit the baby together, and is he there at every conception of an animal and making sure the atoms do what they do? Or has God made the world now to function in such a way and he can sit back and chill? I think it's both and. God, because he put his design elements in the world, it is like God knits all of us together. But it's not literally God knitting us together. It's that which he has put in motion from the beginning of creation. That's why when children come from their mom and dad, we call that procreation. It's a way of understanding there's something that we're doing, but it's not totally up to us. It's really manipulating or working with what God has already given us. As the old joke goes between God and the devil, the devil says, I can do this much better than you. Give me a chance at making humanity. I'll make them better. They'll serve me. They won't rebel like they did with you. And then, and Jesus says, okay, devil, you can go ahead and do it. Go ahead. And then the devil goes, well, I first need the dirt because, you remember, that's what man was made out of. And then, I, and then I need you to help make the man stick together, and then I'll take it from there, right? See, that's the old joke is that the devil doesn't even have his own dirt. God created something out of nothing, nothing prior to that, but his own power and ability. Satan can't do that, ex nihilo, as though the theologians would say, out of nothing. God creates out of his own creative ability, whatever he wants, however he wants. But since he's made the universe, he has now made it to govern by his laws. He doesn't insert anything there. But what is the work that he is doing? The kind of work that I just mentioned. He's working in our lives. He's doing new things within us. Those things are still happening because of God. Now go back to our example here of Hebrews. What kind of rest are we supposed to have? We are supposed to have a rest that says, I don't earn my salvation. I'm saved by grace through faith, not of works because I can't boast about it. But now that I'm saved and I'm at rest, I'm supposed to do the daily work of God in my life. I'm supposed to co-labor with God. Can I hear an amen? And as I co-labor with God, how do I do it? I do it from a place of rest, like how he's at a place of rest. When God does things in my life by the Holy Spirit, he's not working up his energy. He's not having to exert himself. He's simply from that place of being all powerful, demonstrating his goodness and love. And so from Jesus' place of rest, he works in our life. From Father's place of rest, he works in our life. Blessed Trinity, from the Holy Spirit's place of rest, He rests in our li- he works in our life. And so now we are supposed to, from a place of rest, work the things of God. Amen? That's why he says therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who had formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God set a certain day calling it today. That day is the day of salvation. That's when we enter into what they did not have. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David as in the passage already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And how many remember that passage from the previous chapter? You're supposed to hear the Word and not have a hard heart towards the Word. Now look at verse 8. It says, for if Joshua, and I have Jesus there in the King James, and I believe that's the correct translation, Jesus had given them rest, God would not have spoken about a later day. Now why is there an argument over whether or not it should be Jesus or Joshua? If you remember the discussion I've given you before, they're actually the same exact name. The translators early on wanted there to be a difference between the one we worship that is called Jesus or Joshua to everybody else named Jesus or Joshua. By them doing that, they've caused a little bit of confusion. Confusion that starts with the very fact that I've just told you that Jesus' name is Joshua, okay? That right there confuses most of you because you're like, Jesus and Joshua, those are totally two different names. No, they're not. They're actually the same exact name, just two different trails through etymology, one, Joshua goes directly from Hebrew, Yeshua, to English. You almost hear it in the Hebrew, right? Yeshua. What does that sound like? Joshua. Now, here's where you get the, uh, I want to say nincompoops, but I'll try to be polite. But those who now want to say, where does Jesus come from? As it's pronounced in the Greek, Iesus, they'll say Zeus. And that's, like I said, in a, a, a cotton-headed ninny okay? Just because house and mouse sound alike doesn't mean that they have the same etymology. They don't, okay? Iesus does not come from Zeus. It has nothing to do with it, even though it has an oos at the end. Jesus is Greek going from Yeshua to Jesus is then where we get Jesus now some people will say well there was never a j and, and that you're only supposed to use the Hebrew name and all of these different things so they wouldn't even accept Joshua or Jesus you have to use the sacred name of Yeshua all of this is nonsense how do we know because our bible was handed to us in greek and if you take what is for us or what is for the Greek language, an I, and you transliterate it to a J, it's the same exact word, Jesus or Jesus. So now going back to our discussion Jesus, Jesus, Joshua, Yeshua. Are they speaking about anybody different there? No, those are all the same person, the same name. Now, are there multiple people with that name in the Bible? Yes, there is a guy named Joshua who was Moses' assistant. And as Moses' assistant, he took over the camp of Israel and led them into the promised land. At this point of the writing of Hebrews, it says that he had not given them rest. And so now the question is, is that the one we're supposed to think of? Or are we supposed to have the big picture that this is Jesus, Joshua, the son of God, Not the son of none, Joshua, but the big picture is Jesus had not given them rest. Now, do you see the argument? The debate is between whether or not it's the guy who was Moses' assistant or whether or not we're talking about Jesus, the son of God. Some of you look confused, but I can't help you because some of you also were napping. So listen, I can't help you on that. But let me just tell you this. If you go back and listen to the tape, you'll see what I said. Now, here's what I believe. Jesus is the one that could not give them or did not give them rest. And the King James also says that. Now, the confusion is between Joshua and Jesus because they have the same exact Greek name. When you look at the original Greek manuscript, it says Jesus, That can be referring to... Joshua, the son of Nun, or Joshua, the son of God. I'm just using that name Joshua now. Does everybody get that? It could be referring to Jesus, the son of Nun, who was Moses' assistant, or Jesus, the son of God, okay? It doesn't really affect the translation, it doesn't really affect the interpretation of the passage. It's just good that you recognize that. So I believe it's speaking big picture here. Jesus did not give the people of Israel rest at that time. I don't think it's speaking about Joshua because it doesn't make sense to the context. The entire context is that the people were rebelling against God, not merely men. It was God using men. So that's why I side with the King James of keeping it as Jesus. Now, if they were consistent, any time we saw these words, it would always be the same one, and then we would just have to figure out which one it is. But these aren't the only times that they do this. They call James in the Bible James, but then when they talk about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they say it's Jacob, but James is Jacob. Can I hear an amen? And then the same thing is with Jude. Jude is Judah and Judah is Judas. Judas, Jude, and Judah are all the same word. So I said this to one of our pastors. She named her child Judah. She didn't understand she named her child Judas. It's the same exact word or it's the same exact person or the, the name, right? It's just one goes through the Greek and has the S. The other one is Judas. So she didn't know that. Named, she named her child Judas. But that's okay because this guy named Judas or Judah doesn't ruin the name for everybody else. It's still a great name. Amen. Okay, but for our culture, if you named your child Judas, everybody would be like, Satanas, get behind me, Satan. But you name your child Judah, you're like, oh, that's so sweet, that's from the Bible. Judah and Judas come from the same exact root word, okay? I'm teaching you these things so you can understand the Hebrew roots. But then other people want to use these uh, little tricks, and they want to try to trick you into believing something different about the Bible now because of that. All of us who have studied the Bible, see, like, in other words, this might work on somebody who doesn't know. But all of us who studied the Bible, we go, yeah, doy, we know this, you know. There was no J back then. We know this, you know. His name was Yeshua. We know this. Like, like, what is your point? Well, you have to call him that because that's the only name by which you might be saved. Where did you get that from? The New Testament. What does it say there? Uh, silence. It doesn't say Yeshua there. It says Jesus. Do you understand? So if the New Testament could be written in Greek, we can say it in English. If it was meant to be preserved in Hebrew we were all supposed to use these sacred names, that's how the New Testament would have come to us. And by the way, the Old Testament was translated into the Greek long before Jesus ever came as well. It's called the Septuagint. This name game is just a way for them to lure you in. It's like something they throw out, and then once they get you with that, like, oh, I didn't know that. His real name is Yeshua. That should be pronounced Joshua. And once they get you with that, then they introduce all these other wacky things, you know. And then before you know it, you're living on a commune sharing your wife with the leader, okay. So watch yourself before you wreck yourself, amen. So if Jesus had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. Well, hold on. I thought everything was about that day and about that time. No, remember, there was another kind of rest that even those who were obedient, taking a week off, were supposed to look forward to as another day. And the promised land was supposed to represent that another day, but that other day was really the kingdom of God. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works just as God did from his. Oh, well, hold on. I thought it says they already had that rest. Look at verse 11 now. Let us, therefore, make every effort to enter that rest. Go back up to, I believe it's like verse 7. Let's make every effort to enter that rest. No, no, I'm sorry. It's verse 4. Look at verse 4. It says, uh, uh, go go up just a little bit. Sorry, it's verse 3. Look at it here. It says, now we who have believed enter what? Okay, so in one sense, he goes, we entered that rest. Now go back down. Go back down, please. And then what does it say? Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest. So am, am I in the rest or am I trying to get to the rest? Somebody say both. Both. How does Jesus rest? How does God rest? He rests from not creating that way, from not being involved in creation as in making new things, ex nihilo. But how is he working? He's working by his spirit through the creation he's already made in our lives. How are we supposed to rest in salvation? We receive it. We say that I don't have to do anything else to earn it. It's a gift received by grace. Everything I do from this point on, the yoke will be easy and the load will be light and my soul will be at rest. But do I now at rest do nothing? No. Like God, as Jesus said, the Father is still working. I now still have work to do. But I don't do it from a place of turmoil, of trying to earn salvation, I do it from my place of rest. See it again. Go up just a little bit and see what he ties in here now. Go up to verse 10, please. We'll go to verse 8. For if Jesus had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. How many are people of God here today? There's a rest waiting for you. But I thought I'm already at rest. Yeah, you're at rest in your salvation. But there's a rest when you get to heaven. And I'm going to show you that in just a moment. There remains a rest for me, God. I thought I had it all. No, there's still more to come in rest. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works just as God did from his. Look at Roman, uh, Revelation chapter 14, verse 13. Revelation chapter 14, verse 13 says that when we get to heaven, we will rest from our works. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit. Notice the Spirit speaking. I love the Holy Spirit. He just sneaks around and goes, peek-a-boo. Don't you love that? Have you ever tried to look for the Holy Spirit in the Scriptures? Isn't that just wonderful? Yes, says the Spirit. It's like, where did that voice come from? That's the Spirit speaking. Okay, yes, says the Spirit. They will rest from their what? Their labor for their deeds will what? Follow them. Well, I thought we were already at rest if we were Christians. We are. But what is that rest we're looking forward to? The rest of no longer needing to do good deeds. Wow. So you mean Christianity has two kinds of rest? Absolutely. Absolutely. There is the first rest that we experience when we come to Jesus and we understand the same one who put that fire by night, cloud by day is the one who takes care of us. The same one who put manna on the ground is the same one that will provide for us. When we come to Jesus, we take his yoke and his, his, his load upon us and it's light and it's easy. That is salvation and that is to be received today. Can I hear an amen? And then there is a rest. Now that we have this rest, there is a rest we also look forward to because every day, even though we're at rest with Christ, we're still doing the works of the Lord. And even though we have joy when we suffer, suffering still stinks and we don't like it. Amen? And even though there are testimonies that come after tests, we still have to go through them. And there then will be a time where we rest once and for all and never have to do another good deed again in the face of the devil. That's what Christianity looks like. That's why the book of Hebrews gave us that illustration. Going back to the notes, please. We see that there is a rest even for us. And we need to, verse 11, make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. And next week, by God's grace, we'll get into the word of God being alive and active. But let us just finish this passage. Go up to the first verse and read with me as I go through all 11 verses and see if you can tie this together, the two aspects of God's rest. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now we who have believed have entered that rest, just as God has said. So I declared on my oath and anger, they shall never enter my rest. Yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day. In these words, on the seventh day, God rested from all of his works. And again, in the passage above, it says, they shall never enter my rest. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, talking about salvation, and since those who had formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in, because of their disobedience, God again, somebody say God again, thank you, God again set a certain day, calling it today, somebody say today, is the day of salvation, come on, say this is the day of salvation, thank you, this he did, when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, for if Jesus had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for whose people? God's people, people who are now resting in the Lord in salvation. For anyone who enters into God's rest also rests from their works. Hallelujah. How many are working for Jesus today? Putting in OT. They will rest from their works just as God did from His. Because at some point, God will be done working through his people on the earth as well. As the example of when he finished creation, he'll finish the work of the church as well. Amen. Lawrence, would you come, please, in closing? Today, do you have the rest of God starting with salvation? We said all that this author gave us today so that we could examine our lives and see if we have the rest of God in our souls. First and foremost, Have you repented of your sins, been born again? Have you realized that your good deeds cannot achieve for you the things of God? No matter how hard you try, you cannot please God to equal or earn salvation. If you have not realized that yet today, repent of your sins. The heart of a sinner today can be changed to the life of a saint. But the sinner must say, not my will, but God's your will be done. That's the greatest trust fall, isn't it? You see those things, right? Like on those uh, corporate outings, trust fall, and sometimes they go bad, and then they put them up on YouTube, and we laugh at them. You know what I'm saying, bro. (laughs) Look at them. (laughs) Well, you shouldn't have did it like that. Well, hold on here for a second. They told me I could trust them. Yeah, but people tell you they can trust you all the time. You can trust them all the time. Isn't that something? We have to do trust exercises to get people uh, to, to be able to believe again that people are trustworthy because we've been so hurt in life, right? But is God a trustworthy God? Yes. So what they didn't do is they didn't trust God. From the very beginning, trust me, only gather food for six days. I got you on the seventh. They couldn't do it. They went out and gathered it, and then it spoiled in their tent. Trust me, you can do the work on the sixth day and be good on the seventh. Oh, no, man, I don't trust God. I had to go out and get my own firewood. (laughs) Stone him. Trust me, I got you. You won't ever go thirsty. Well, God, there's no water here. We're in a desert. Hit that rock, Moses, and show them what happens here. Water comes out of a rock. They never mix the faith to trust God. And so today, listen, you may be facing those same trials, those same kind of tests. God, look at this. I'm in Chicago. Look how crazy this place is. I don't see any water here. I don't see any refreshment for my soul. I'm going to go try something else now. I'm going to go try this religion. I'm going to go try this drug. I'm going to go do this. And what does God say? Trust me. Come to church. Watch the water come out of the rock. Well, God, if I don't work seven days a week and do all of this, and, and, you know, I won't be able to eat, you know, the church don't pay me. That pastor just keeps getting rich. So I'm just going to put my job before going to church. And God's like, you're going to have so many sorrows with that that wealth that you get. You're going to lose half of it when you lose your marriage anyway. Come on, somebody. Come to church. Take time off. Tell your boss, this is what I prioritize, and watch me provide for you. My friends, can I just help everybody here? Christians have, have built castles. <laughs> Christians have built nations. Listen to me, my fretful brother or sister. You're going to be all right. Okay? The Christian people that built this nation have so much extra food, they throw it away, and a lot of it keeps going here on me. We'll take care of you. God's gonna help you. Oh, but what if, what if, what if? Come on, look, look back at what God has done, how He's taken care of people. The most charitable people in the world are Christians. We have homeless shelters, we have food banks. If that's where you gotta start, you gotta start. But start there, going to church start there giving your tithe and your offering and watch him bless you all the way up to Chick-fil-A that still closes on Sunday. Can I hear an amen for Hobby Lobby and Chick-fil-A saying hey, we're going to show the world that we can be amazing and still close down a day a week. And I'm not saying it's wrong for you to work a job. I'm just saying for those of you you here who have not yet trusted Jesus, trust me, there's a lot of people who have been where you've been and God has shown himself faithful. So you come to Jesus and you trust for salvation and you go to to Betty Bed. You go 99. night. You rest. You stop trying to figure it all out. You stop trying to put all the pieces together because you don't even know where you're, where you're at in the puzzle. A lot of us, we try to put our life together and we're going to fix it and it's like the person saying, I'm going to wash my car before I bring it to the car wash. I'm going to fix my life, I'm going to fix my car before I bring it to the mechanic. I'm going to do this before I go to church. No, come to church as your busted self, as your dirty self, as your broke down self. Amen? And watch what God will do. And so, come to Jesus. Sinners who are here today, who have not yet rested in the Lord. Trust me when I say this. You'll find his lazy boy is comfortable. It's good to rest in Jesus. I've woken up so many days after facing nights of torment or weeks of despair and have realized part of what made it longer than what it should have been was me not taking a seat in Jesus. The Bible says you and I are seated in the heavenly realms with Jesus. The Bible says set your mind on the things above. And then for us who are here, who are now Christians. Who are resting. And you know, sometimes I wish I could do sermon illustrations. Most of the time I don't. Every now and then I do. I always tease my friends. I go, you need them. I don't. (laughs) I mess with my friends. My friend has to have a whole stage of sermon illustrations. And I go, brother, just give me the word and I'll preach for two hours, you know. But I wish right now I could have a sermon illustration of a lazy boy. Because that's what it's supposed to look like. You going to do the works of the Lord. When did Jesus, doing the works of God, ever look stressed out? Did anybody work harder for the Father than Jesus? Then why don't our pastors look more like Jesus? Why do our pastors look like that crooked eye uh, cat that's that stressed out meme? Where's my coffee? You know, this is how I wake up all crazy and stressed out. And pastors put that up. Why don't we look like Jesus? How are you today in this church more stressed out than me, the pastor of this church? Well, I got to go to this life group, and then I got to go to this. Man, I'm, I'm living this life on easy mode. Oh, pastor, you don't work that. No, I work harder than most of all you, even on your secular job. But listen, when I wrote 20 books, I didn't write it like you stressed out. When I lived in the inner city, preached five days a week, all up and down the projects, I didn't look like you after one Bible study. Why? Because I'm doing this on easy mode. How dare I go out into this world and represent something other than Christ while calling myself a Christian? You look at most of those Jehovah Witnesses, man. They need to take a break. They're out there for four or five hours. You know, they got their time cars. They don't know how to rest. You know why? Because they were told by their cult leader, unless you do this, you don't go to heaven. I don't go out and preach. Yesterday, going to uh, preach the gospel in front of the abortion clinic, I would have got paid the same as a pastor. If I do, If I do or I don't, I get paid the same. It doesn't matter. I go out there as a joy. How dare I go out there and go, man, I got to do this again. These crazy, wild sinners. (laughs) Man, I don't want to go. Can we call this off? God forbid. Brothers and sisters, whatever we do, we should do from rest. Oh, that pastor, that's just because you're young. My heroes, anybody here wants this book, I'll give it to you as a gift, either through Kindle or we'll buy it for you. Go to info at mpichurch.org. Free book giveaway. Here it is. Goodbye, Planet Earth by Lester Summerall in his 80s wrote his farewell address. You know what he says in that book? I never had a bad day. Never had an argument with my wife. Never was depressed. And he even goes further than what I could say. He said, and there was never a venture that I started with God that didn't succeed. He wrote that in his 80s. So don't tell me, well, y'all, you just know because you're a younger pastor. No, no, I'm telling you from the people that I've learned from. And you know when he was alive, he was during the time of World War II. This guy had to hide from the communists. This guy had to take ships. He, God told him one time to hop on a ship to go, I believe, to Russia during the time when we could have possibly been at war with Russia, and he didn't know anybody on the other side. God told him to get a one-way ticket over there. Now, if I get it wrong, you can send the email to info at but this is how I basically remember it. And when he went over there, God said, Now raise your hands and shout hallelujah. That's like either a way to die or people think you're crazy or a little bit of both. You know, look at that crazy person Now kill him, you know. So he goes to an underground community, steps off the boat and goes, hallelujah. And one of the people passing by said, God told me to stand out here and wait for somebody to come off a ship and shout hallelujah. And then he took them into his family. And then the guy with Lester Summerall went and preached the gospel all around Eastern Europe or wherever he was at that time. These are the stories that I was brought up on. I'm telling you, I look at these pastors now, they wear $300 sneakers, they drive $200,000 cars, and they still committing suicide. And then I come up here and tell you out of a storefront church, I'm at rest serving Jesus as I've been threatened with my own life. And you think I'm lying to you. Pastor, how are you at rest when they wanted to kill you? Because I trusted Jesus. Was I at fear? Did I feel it? Absolutely. But I knew in Jesus they couldn't do nothing to me. Whatever it was, even unto death, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I'm still going to heaven. Send me there earlier, boys. I've already told my children the goodbye speech. Have you had that talk, parents? You need to because you're not even promised tomorrow. I'm at rest with my death. My kids know what I'm talking about. Haven't I talked to you multiple times if daddy dies? Multiple times. Don't need to put a picture of me at your wedding. Don't miss me in that way. That's all you need to do. Go to that funeral, jump, shout, and holler, and say, at least I know my dad's in heaven. Because dad should have went to hell when he was a sinner all them years before him. We're now going to rejoice that he made it to heaven. And I told him, I said, you know, of course I'm not going to be here, but I said, it's okay to cry. You can be as sad as you want, but just understand this. sadness won't bring me back. And won't help you, but the one who was my best friend will be your best friend, and he'll be a friend that sticks closer than a brother. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. Hallelujah. Let me just give you a few more testimonies. Talk about being at rest. These are just stories that we have heard as preachers throughout our years. One man was on the mission field. Someone came to him and said, your father has died. You have to go back to your family. He said, you lie. My father's in heaven, and he lives forever. This is the kind of faith Christians had. Another one was on the mission field. They say, your father has died. You must go back home to the farm and take care of the harvest. The family needs your help. He said, I serve God. He's the Lord of the harvest, and this is where I'm planting my seed and reaping. God will take care of my family. Now, some people think that means we're going to neglect our family. The Bible says those who do that are worse than infidels. Even when Jesus said to the man, can I go back and say goodbye? Or, or to the other one, can I go bury the dead? And he said, no, you come with me now. Come on, how many know Jesus is not stupid? Someone from that group can go take care of business. Hey, go tell Bob's family he's coming with me now. We all, sometimes we think Jesus is stupid, you know? There's thousands of people around. What he was teaching that man is, you don't go to the funeral now. Let the dead bury the dead and you come on along with me. Send on someone else back there to go do it, but I want you to come. Right? Well, who's going to go say goodbye to my family? There's a thousand of them here, dude. Pick one. Tell them to go to your family and say, I'm on the mission trip now. And yet we look at Jesus like that's just weird and that was back then. No, man. What if God said right now, you're going to India? Well, wait, what about my family? Send this dude to go tell your family you just went to India. Come on. Stop being afraid to serve Jesus. Stop making excuses. We get scared in life, and then we put it on being responsible. Well, well, God wouldn't want me to. You don't know what God would do. God asks people to do a whole lot of crazy stuff in the Bible. Well, God wouldn't ask me to do that to my family. Yeah, he would. God's asked family to move on mission fields a whole bunch of times. Families have died on mission fields for Jesus. Jesus got glory out of that. Whose family is it? Yours or Jesus's? Amen? I'm not saying being irresponsible, but if Jesus said, pack up this family and go move to the Muslim part of the, uh, uh, the the world, I would go do it right now. You better do what God says to do and do it at a place of rest. I remember when our church was having to leave where we were at on Irving Park and come here Because of a lease that I signed wrong, I'm not like Lester Summerall batting 100 with God's plans. I've missed it a few times. So read his life book and not mine if you want to uh, stay at 100%. My book's going to talk about some of the failures, amen? But some of y'all, how many of y'all have lived for Jesus and have made some mistakes and failed already at some stuff? Okay, so you might find more in common with my book, okay? And because of that, I was having to claim bankruptcy because I, stupid as I was at that time, signed my own name on a church lease. Like, what am I going to do? If the church can't pay the bills, how am I driving a station wagon that my parents gave me, running an apartment, how am I going to pay the bill? It was a $500 lease, but I was just like, okay, you want me to sign it? And so we never owed them a dollar. We just had to cut the lease short. We tried to negotiate it for two years. They wouldn't help us. That's the story. So I'm not saying being irresponsible. It was my fault. I never should have been in that building. That's my fault. Had to claim bankruptcy. Okay, Now listen to me, y'all. This is a true story. Had to leave that building to come here. You want to talk about being embarrassed? I'm a person of faith, okay? And I'm a public person. I talk about everything. Already some of you feel uncomfortable right now, right? This, I'm, when I push away that pulpit, it's family talk time, amen? And I was sitting down with a brother. And you know what he had? And I don't mean this to be disrespectful because I love this man. Of God. If he's listening, you know I love you, brother, because he checks in on me. He had one bad apple in his church cause a fit. He had just started planting this church and it was growing. More than 20, 30 people. Had one bad apple cause a fit. But at that same time of the fit, now watch this, he had met another pastor that had given him 5000 The pastor said, listen, I'm going to give you 5000 Keep doing the ministry. Didn't know anything about this little problem that he had going on. I sat down with this pastor. God is my witness. Right over here at Cozy Corner. He told me that. And he said, now I'm at a point of decision. I said, what, what do you, what's, your, what's your problem? What, what do you got to decide? He said, well, I got to decide whether or not to shut down the church. I said, brother, you just got this problem over here. You're going to always have problems. This is worship leader acting crazy. I said, brother, and God already confirmed that whatever they gave in tithes, because it was a smaller church. I said, he confirmed he wants you to be there. He, he sent somebody to give you a $5,000 check. So You get $5,000 checks everywhere you go, people? Come on. I even asked him, is this normal? No, this is a a one-time thing out of the middle of nowhere. I then told him my story. He said, brother, what? You're going bankrupt. You're losing a building. They want to sue you. They want to do this, and you got all these problems. And he said, brother, I didn't even know you were having those problems. You came here so happy. This is what he said to me. He said, what I'm going through right now, this is what he told me. He was an Iraq war veteran. He said, what I'm going through, you could tell it on his face. He had not been sleeping for days. This is the truth. He had been calling me even prior to that as well about some of these problems. He said, what I'm going through now is worse than my PTSD of being in the Iraq war. He said, here's the difference. I knew if I died over there or went through something over there, it was just me and my family would be okay. He says, the problem here is so much worse because I'm thinking about my wife and my kids and what is everybody going to think. And when I told him what I was going through, you know, in the natural, it was a thousand times worse. Man, I got to gotta go see Peter Geraci. I got to, seriously, I had to go to Peter Geraci's office, bro. I got to sit down and explain to some. You know how many times in bankruptcy court they ask me, why do you owe these people money on behalf of this place? What is Metro Praise? First of all, they would always ask me. I said, it's a church. How do you owe a half a million dollars on behalf of a church? I said, because I signed my name on the lease. I'm the pastor. Every single one of those clerks and those people that I worked with, even to the day that I was at the city county building, they said, man, we feel sorry for you, man. We'll be praying for you. I'm so serious. They're like, we're sorry we got to do it, man, but, you know, we got to do it. I'm looking at my brother. He's freaking out, not getting sleep, saying that this is the worst time of his life, worse than being in the Iraq war. And he looked at me, God is my witness, and said, bro, I didn't even know anything was going on. He said, why didn't you tell me? I said, because God got it. God got it. Give me that, I I got a lazy boy with some buttons on it. Give me the one that kicks up my feet right now. God got it. Let me get the one that pushes back and a little massage at the same time. What am I going to do to fix it? God got it. And I remember the one time, the one time it was like 20 seconds I was talking to my dad and I lost my peace and it was bad. I started yelling because I was like, Dad, you got to bring me into your house because i got nowhere to go. I don't have any money. I, I don't know what we're going to do. And I, and I said, Dad, will you let me come stay? And I always say, my dad, you failed the test here because my dad goes, no. But he said he was trying to test, he was trying to make a room for God to do some test my faith. I'm like, don't ever test my faith like that again. You know what I'm saying? But he's like, no, you can't come to my house. My Christian dad and I yelled at him. I didn't cuss him out. Praise God. I didn't swear at him. But I was so mad. I was like, how dare you? I got like two kids, three kids. You better let me in your house. Come on. We're just going to call the vacation and never leave now, I guess. But I'm telling you, then I just, I, I'm, it was one day. My wife knows what I'm talking about. It was like one conversation. And then I went right back to that lazy boy. And I said, I'm not moving from here. I didn't call myself into ministry. I didn't put myself in Chicago. This wouldn't be where I would be at. I, this is not the church that has my name on it. It has his name on it. And do you know that those few months, they were tough. But I can't even hardly recall any day in that time. Because you know what? Like Joseph in a pit, like Joseph at Potiphar's house, like Joseph in prison, those days just went by like a vapor. <laughs> and the next thing I knew, I was standing in the blessing of God. The next thing I knew, I saw the church starting to grow. I started to see that bank account get bigger than we'd ever seen before. And I started seeing the promises of God come through in ways that I'd never seen before. And so if you ask me now, like like if you actually said the date, some of you all remember when we first came back here and, and Cynthia and others were there. If you were to ask me, well, what was that Sunday like? And that next Sunday, I don't know. But I just showed up, preached, loved Jesus, and he made a way. Do you know that my mother has that same testimony about when she buried her daughter who died drinking and driving? I don't know how I made it through. I don't know all the the steps that I took. I don't know whose book that I wrote. I just know I rested in Jesus and He took the sorrow out of my heart and He brought back joy and He gave me peace and I went to church and I loved Jesus. See, some of you here today in closing will miss the rest because you're so busy out there trying to get it and I've been there. Stop missing it. Sit in it. Relax. Trust. One last example. Pray for me. I'm this close to passing a test to where I can trade stocks and be the kind of person I want on the side because everybody needs a side gig right now. Can I hear an amen? And so I'm a part of this organization where i got to make a certain amount of money in a certain amount of time, and I've failed the test 34 times. Think about how much of a failure I feel like right now. 34 times I have paid to take a test it is not a free test I have paid to take it and I have failed it and I have a doctorate degree written 20 books you think I haven't thought about quitting now listen to me one of the things that gets me every single time because I trade up and I trade down if things are going down I want to make sure it keeps going down because I want to make money there if it's going up I want to make sure it's going up I pick directions everybody tracking with me my biggest problem 34 times failing is that when I pick the direction, let's say it's supposed to go down, it always does this. It goes right opposite what I picked it was supposed to do. And then you know what I do? I get out and take my loss. But then guess what it does the next minute? Boom. And I Man, I just lost X amount of dollars on this stupid test, and now it's going in my exact direction. And you talk to anybody who trades the test exactly the way it is because most people read the same exact signals that we all read. We're not, you know, geniuses. Some people are. They make a lot of money by being a genius. But most people just read the signals. All of us got the signal. This is going down. All of us got it, okay? You have your tracking measures. You have your, your, your indicators, and everybody knows it's going down. But, see, there are big boys, hedge funds, that go, guess what? They're all going to think it's going down now. Throw it off. Bump them out. And then we all get bumped out, right? And then they take it and then they go in that same direction. This is what I had to learn. Be at peace with that original decision. And so when I watch it go against me, And we have to trade with big numbers for me to work for this company. I start with a $100,000 account, so it's thousands of dollars. And I'm watching this thing go up against me when I'm believing that it's going to go down. Everything inside of me is saying, get out of it. It's a bad trade. Get out of it. But I have to sit there and I have to watch this for it to go in my direction. And then I go, yeah, 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 I did it. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then it failed 34 times because I can't do it long enough. And the next one comes. Oh, no, no, this time I'm really wrong, and my indicator's wrong. And then I'll get out, and then it'll do the exact same thing. It will go, boom, boom. Or if I'm waiting for it to go up, I'll say, oh, it's going to go up. And then I'll buy it here, and it goes, and then I'll get out, and then I'll go. And you know what I've learned? And this is why I'm one day, really two days away from passing it. I have now the highest, longest score that I've ever had. And if I can make it, pray for me, I'll be done. My wife's knowing this because she hears me talk about it all the time. But what am I already feeling right now is the fear. I've got to do it two or three more days, though. And I'm going to face that same exact scenario where everything is going to look like it's going against me. I'm going to say to myself, oh, get out of this. You're going to fail your test. It's wrong. You're stupid. What's wrong? with This is the 35th one you fail. You're dumb. And you've got to stay through it. I could sit here and everything of life give you these examples. We quit moments before our breakthrough. Moments. Moments. Some of you are wondering why your marriage hasn't had a breakthrough yet. It's because you are quitting at the first sign of trouble every single argument. Every single argument goes against what you talked about with the counselor and then now you want to quit. Every young person here going back to your lifestyle, going back to your friends, going back to the Internet, seeing things you're not supposed to, is because you leave out of here, and it changes directions. One minute, you get one off thought. You get one temptation. You get one girlfriend, boyfriend calling you up. You get out of your rest. I want every single one of us, as we leave from this place, To make a commitment to God, I will never leave his rest. I will never leave his rest. Every good work that I ever do from this point, I will do it from the rest of God. If you're going to trade stocks and you're going to face anxiety, you're going to trade it from the rest of God. If you're going to go be a police officer today, you're going to go do it from the rest of God. If you're going to go be an engineer and work on billion-dollar projects, the CERN project or whatever these things are called, you're going to go out there and do it from the rest of God. Every single one of us is going to trust God in our lives, in our marriages, in our families, on our jobs, with our, with our careers. Amen? Would you stand up and give it up for Jesus today? And somebody say, I trust you, Lord. Thank you. Band and altar workers, would you come, please?